Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. My guest today is Sarah Pelizari, and she's the owner of Southern Colorado Animal Assisted Therapy and Training. Sarah has an interesting background. She's both a dog trainer and a licensed clinical social worker. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here today. I'm really eager to hear your story. I think those are an interesting combination of fields and how you wound up pursuing both passions. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got from being a little kid to where you are now? Give us the whole story. Okay, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, from when I was a child, I definitely loved animals a lot. And I come from a large family. So I have five siblings. I was number five of six. And I think it was just natural for me to have a lot of like small animals and pocket pets and um, that and kind of nurture them as my companions because there was a lot going on in my household as a kid, just with the busyness with all my siblings. So I really took to like being that kid in my family who had the pets, uh, the little pets, and we always had dogs. Um, our first dog was actually a German Shepherd, and his name was Liebstrom, which is Italian for love song. Um, if you didn't gather, my last name is Italian. So my my dad came up with Liebstrom. So it's a nice name. Love song, Liebstrom. We called him Liebe for short. And I remember him pretty clearly, but, you know, he passed when I was about six years old. So I was pretty young, uh, but he had lived to about 13. And I remember him being just kind of protective and just a good good soul. He was a German shepherd, but he was like the silver color. So he was just beautiful. So he was kind of my first, I guess, dog that I loved. And then we had Shelties after that uh, for years up until just, gosh, my parents lost their last Sheltie during the pandemic. So in 2020, so Shelties are great dogs. They have fun personalities. I I don't like to stereotype, but they do like to herd and bark, you know, that's their instinct. Mm -hmm. So they're herding dogs. So that's kind of how I had my love for animals was just growing up in a family that was, uh, you know, conducive to that. And I initially thought I would probably go into like veterinary science and went off to college at North Carolina State, originally from North Carolina. And I majored in zoology. And then I found out it was not really, um, it was really hard for me to absorb the information. It's very hard for me to memorize things. I'm very good at like conceptual, you know, concepts and theories and love that sort of thing. And it done like really well in advanced placement psychology in high school. And so I decided in college that I was going to go more of the mental health social work route. And so that's where I started. And that was like 18 
or so years ago. So it's been a while since I graduated, but I had a career in social work first. And then 10 years ago, I decided to go back for my master's degree at the University of Denver, and they have a specialized program in their social work graduate school. It's called the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, and social work students can learn how to use, well, I shouldn't say use, but have animals as part of their work for therapeutic benefit for their clients. And so I had started in an internship that was not the best fit for me as a grad student, and you know, I left the internship was the best thing I've ever done because I landed at a new internship at Freedom Service Dogs of America. And so they had a program for training service dogs and training and, and just dogs in general to be more adoptable, but they would have um, high risk youth in the greater Denver area actually training the dogs. So we would recruit different agencies to this program and we would either take the dogs to them and they would, we would show them how to, you know, use positive reinforcement to train the dogs, or they would come to us and they would learn how to train at freedom service dogs. So wonderful program. That's where I got into positive reinforcement training. I was really excited to, you know, learn about that relationship building with animals. I had never really understood. I kind of had this like underlying understanding that, you know, there's a way we relate to animals that can be mutually beneficial if we really tune into it. But I didn't know there was a way of training that until, you know, 10 years ago when I was in this program. So that was great. Like that really shifted how I viewed my relationship with companion animals and animals in general. So that's where I got my start with the dog training piece. They also had a therapy dog or they still have a therapy dog certification program. And one of their adoptable dogs who had been in service dog training, but got released actually went up for adoption right when I was graduating, his name was putter. And so I had used putter in some of the groups with kids. I absolutely loved him. He was just the best dog. He was a pit bull and boxer mix. The first time I saw him, you know, I had those stereotypes in my mind. I was pretty scared. I was like, oh, you want me to use this dog for group? So I went to his kennel, you know, I went to take him out. And the first thing he did for me was just sit, like sit patiently, was waiting for me. And he just stole my heart. Like he was so wonderful. Every time I would walk by his kennel, he would put his cheek up to the side (laughs) of the kennel for scratching Mm -hmm. just for me. Like he knew that was our thing. And so when he went up for adoption, they knew you know, I was really attached to him. And they asked me, they're like, you have first dibs, you know, you've, you've helped us out with our programming. Like, do you want putter? And I said, absolutely. You know, they asked, do you want to take him through the therapy dog certification program? I said, yes, definitely. So we worked really, really hard. He had some really good foundation training, but, you know, I worked really hard to get him through therapy dog certification. And so that was the end of 2012 that we graduated from their therapy dog program. And I got my start, you know, with him training and, and working in different groups um, with me as a mental health therapist when I moved to Colorado Springs from Denver. And I really just loved the training aspect so much that I was able to convince one of my agencies I was working for to reimburse me for going through Karen Pryor Academy uh, in 2017. So that was wonderful. Yeah. So that was, uh, again, one of the best, I think, decisions I've made as far as like life path and, you know, course, the program up in Boulder was great. 
I had a, a really positive experience and it just helped me to really refine a lot of my training mechanics and, you know, get a, a little better understanding of behavior and then feel comfortable branching out and working with more dogs. I'm really highly involved in volunteering and rescues and helping, you know, dogs that are are in shelter environments. So I do that as a volunteer. And then I've branched off to do some basic obedience training with people, but kind of market more of like the therapy dog training for, you know, other mental health professionals who are interested in that. So that is something that I definitely still do. So I've got the two sides to my little business, one where I'm working with my human clients and the other side where I work with dog clients. And I have another therapy dog now. Putter has since passed. He passed away six weeks ago. So that's been really difficult. Um, Lyra, his successor has been with me for five years. And so she and I have a really good bond. We've worked together for a long time. And so she's my solo therapy dog right now. So that's kind of where I'm at with that piece. But yeah, so it's been an adventure. I never, if you would have asked me, you know, 10 years ago, I would have never guessed like this is where I would end up. So it's been super exciting and, and a lot of growth, a lot of growth for sure. If we had been able to show you the picture 10 years ago and ask you, do you want this? Would you have wanted it 10 years ago? I think I would have, but I think I would have also been like, is that really possible? Like, that seems so weird. Like, how can you blend those two things together? And like, you know, I branched off into my own business and I would have probably thought, well, that's not going to be workable. I think I would have just had a lot of doubts. Like it would have sounded exciting, but I would have been like, yeah, but like, that sounds like a ton of work. And I mean, it has been work, but it's also been like things I've really wanted to do. So yeah. Yeah, I think that's what made the difference and really pushed me to keep going. That does seem to make such a big difference, doesn't it? Like that there's so much hard work, but the passion and the meaning behind it help us keep doing the hard work of of all of the skills that we have to learn to to do more than just the piece that pulled us there. So, you know, learning the training, but also all of the stuff of the business and all of the work within that. Absolutely. And, you know, I have such a wonderful network here in Colorado Springs. There are a lot of positive reinforcement dog trainers that are just really dedicated and they've kind of been my mentors along the way. And so that's really helped too. And then I've had a lot of wonderful people on the social work side too. So I've been really lucky. I think I just happened to be, you know, in the right place at the right time and moved to the right place and that everything just kind of clicked into place. So Yeah. So some of it feels like good fortune, but I am a firm believer too, like on the therapist side of what I do is that you, you uh, invite and encourage what you believe in. So your thoughts have a lot of power. So I do think that that was kind of, you know, keeping open minds, like good things can come and good things can flow. And that's why I said yes to a lot of things. When I think if you're sort of closed off to ideas, you might be like, well, no, like, you know, I would never go in that direction or I would never do that. The idea of like having an open mind or even expanding a mind that isn't open and, and allowing it to envision new possibilities resonates for me with your work with the high-risk youth, because I did a couple of sessions with kids who had to volunteer at a shelter as part of the word coming to me as parole, but that's not the right thing. But like, you know, Mm -hmm. that was a program that they had to participate in. And it was really fascinating to have conversations with them about um, about mutual respect and cooperation and communication and where our rights end and where 
you know, like, like I don't have the right to hit a dog and no one has the right to hit you. And so many of them were parented or around people who treated them in ways that we would never want a child to be treated. Yes. And by learning how to interact with dogs in kind, healthy, nurturing ways, they also started to see that they they themselves had the kind, healthy, nurturing ways within them and that they deserved that treatment. They deserved to be treated kindly and with respect, which they didn't always have. It, and it was it was a small part of my past where I did that, but it was really, really powerful to me. And so to think of you doing that more regularly or, or having ways of helping kids um, break through that a little bit is incredible. What do you think are the, the most powerful pieces for you in helping kids when an animal is involved in your sessions? What are some of the openings that are easier for them to achieve? Yeah, that's a great question. And I really appreciate that you have been in that position where you've seen like that benefit. Amazing. Especially for children and in adults too, who have had a lot of trauma, you know, a lot of traumatic things happen in their backgrounds. Um, what I've seen that I feel like is the most helpful is, you know, I'm not just another person and not just another provider that they're coming in to see. I have this, this dog who or sometimes horse, because I've done some equine therapy too, who is this bridge, right? Who is like this bridge of trust. And so it's really beautiful because, um, you know, maybe not right away, but maybe over time, it's like something that they can count on, like seeing the animal in session, they bond completely different with an animal, as you probably noticed than with another human being. Like when you've had a lot of trauma, it's just really difficult to form like healthy attachments with other human beings, because sometimes those were people that hurt you, right? Like people did the the hurting, whereas like animals are seen as more of like, you know, the innocent and it, it is easier for them to draw, you know, some parallels around empathy and um, communication. Like you said, like that had been huge and boundaries. Those were things that definitely you know, we would touch on in, in most of my sessions where the animal, you know, whether it's a dog or a horse would be present. So yeah, absolutely. I think that it's just a gentler way of like trying to reach kids and adults who have, have been through like some really traumatic things. So it's a, it's a bridge. It's definitely a bridge and, and not everybody is like ready and appropriate for that. You know, I definitely screen. I definitely get to know my clients a little bit first. Like some people do have histories where it's like, well, you know, we'd have to work on some regulation skills first. Like we have to get you to a point where you'd be safe with an animal in a session. But, you know, I worked for an agency where they referred me uh, to see children who were in foster care placements who had been through just everything under the sun you could imagine. And most of those kids just really connected very well. And I kind of became known as this person who did this in the community. And so I would get a lot of referrals for that reason from the Department of Human Services. So that was really nice. You know, I felt like that was some of the the best work that I was able to do was with my dogs, working with children that were in the system and that just needed that extra support. So, and it's experiential. So, you know, with an animal you're doing, like, even if it's just, you know, you're sitting there and you're petting the animal or you decide to teach them a new trick, like we would learn how to do that together. Like 
it's building some confidence, uh, working with the animal, right? So instead of sitting and, and doing talk therapy, which really does not uh, work well for a lot of children, especially children and adults who have been through trauma, like being able to do something is much more helpful. It helps, you know, connect those dots, connect the pieces. So yeah, so it is, it's a very powerful thing to be able to offer and to be able to do. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to go down this path. What's the best part of it for you? Gosh, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Like I love having animals in my work. Like I love dogs, like just being able to have them. I mean, that's, it's therapeutic for me, like, to be honest, like having them in my office space, it makes my work day much better. Obviously being able to offer that to other people is wonderful too. There have been a lot of staff that have worked, you know, in the same places that I've been that have gravitated towards my dogs. And that was the, the highlight for them too, is being able to see them and just knowing, you know, that I was able to bring something in like that and and make people feel a little bit happier at being at the workplace, right? So because mm-hmm. we we had really stressful work. So I've worked it everywhere from like outpatient um mental health facilities and I worked in inpatient mental health hospitals. So a lot of it is really like high stress, high volume work and being able to take the dogs around to visit the staff and just give them a little bit of a break time was really nice too. So now that I'm branched off in my own business, a little bit different, but yeah, but I still, you know, was able to take that with me, which has been great. Yeah, it is interesting that that your two different paths both have such high levels of compassion fatigue and burnout. They do, both of them. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> yeah, that's no lie. And you know, I've been there like over and over again. And and I don't. I guess you know, I I keep going because I love enough aspects of the work that I'm like, yes, you know, I'm in it. Like I know that this is, is needed and there's always a need, but it is difficult. And I've talked a lot uh, to different people lately about boundaries, not just my clients, but like for myself, like boundaries and how important it is to have boundaries and how I've really had to coach myself to have better boundaries because you can get so emotionally involved in your work And it may feel really good and it may feel really good for a long time. But then there are some points where you're like, oh, you know, I really need to balance things out. Like I really need to pull back. And there are also times when it doesn't feel good when you're like, oh, like I have taken on too much or I've taken on things that I really don't want to do. I think that's always been a wall that I hit is like saying yes when I should say no. And so it's taken a lot of practice. I'm sure no one has had that experience. Yeah. And I almost feel like, you know, compassion fatigue on the training side is almost like the animal welfare side is almost harder for me, you know, because there's something about animals where you're like, well, I want to be able to help the animals so badly. And it can be so hard to draw those lines because there's always a person involved and, you know, whether or not the human client on the, you know, the animal's handler or owner wants to participate and wants to make things better is sometimes variable, right? Yeah. Yeah. That can be really tough. And that's something that I've sort of had to adjust to is like, it's not just training a dog, right? It's not just, you're really working with the uh, person involved a lot. So yeah, it is really difficult and and challenging. Um, You were talking about boundaries and boundaries are one of those things that it's a big category of things that we could have boundaries about. And people often don't know how to start setting their boundaries. And one of the things that you mentioned was um, sort of learning to say no 
to things. Can you tell me, um, like, give us an example of what might happen? I'm, I'm throwing you on the spot here because you're the licensed clinical social worker. That's okay. What might happen internally for someone who cares very much about doing a good job and helping animals when people ask her to do things and she's already full, but she knows if she says no, that the need won't be met. That is such a common experience. And how, how do we set boundaries when we think like, if not me, no one, it's not a, if not me, who it's a, if not me, this need might not be met. And that seems to be a huge issue for pet professionals. That is very hard. It is very hard. And I think, you know, if you, if you first know what you want to say yes to, it makes it a lot easier. If you've provided yourself the structure to begin with, to say, you know, this, and this is it. And to also know like, okay, maybe that thought about like, well, if I don't do it, nobody will. Maybe that's not true, right? You know, like what are what's the support system here? Like what are the other resources? Because what we generally find out in the field of animal welfare and dog training is that there are a lot of people that want to help. And if we can sort of lean on each other, right? Like reach out to other people and understand, you know, who is available for support. And especially now with having so much that can be done virtually and people being able to connect that way, I think it's really important to lean on, you know, think of things as a community. That's something that I started to take with me in volunteering because I was at the point with shelter volunteering where I'm like, oh man, but you know, I go in, like I'm responsible for doing enrichment for like all these dogs and like cleaning up. And it started to help me to think of it more as like, I'm part of this ecosystem that, you know, I'm doing what I can to um, maintain the ecosystem. And there are all these other supports around me. So, and, and it may not necessarily feel that way for like private day trainers, but what I'm realizing now is, you know, there are those networks there. So leaning on, even if it's just having people to talk to and say, Hey, like, I don't know, like, should I take this case? Like, can you give me some perspective on this? Um, And if I am going to take it, what can I let go of? Right. Cause if I know I'm full and I take this on, it's going to create resentment and regret, and I'm going to be exhausted and, you know, sort of knowing for yourself, like those are your warning signs of burnout. You don't want to go there again. And if you've been there, like, you know, you really don't want to go there over and over again. So yeah, I think that community and like that ecosystem perspective is kind of what has helped me is just realizing, no, you know, you're not alone. Like you don't have to fix the world's problems. Like there are other people that are involved. And if, if not like find them, right? Like find them. They're absolutely out there. I think sometimes we have to pull away from that hero mentality and say, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't have to be the hero. Like we can, we can create something different. That's more sustainable. Uh, that will work for us. So that's kind of where I've moved to, because, you know, it is, it's hard on both sides and definitely saw that a lot in the shelter environment was like, oh, just this overwhelming volume, like all the time. Right. Yeah. You can't, you just can never do everything there. So you have to have some acceptance. Yeah. It's really tricky too, because you can never do everything. I mean, like that's just a statement of fact, but you can do more 
when you've taken care of yourself, which seems counterintuitive in the, in the face of the need, you know, like, like, oh, I should not rest. I should not stop because there's this huge need, but Mm -hmm. we do see such a difference for people when they do lean into community and create community. Like sometimes people don't feel that they have community and, and have to seek out and create a community, which can even be small. Like community doesn't have to be huge, but having, having people to talk to and having people to turn to make such a big difference. And then recognizing that your needs matter. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like having self-compassion, you know, and there, there are a lot of resources out there for that now too. And it's much easier to find ways to, you know, learn healthy coping mechanisms than it used to be, even though there's still a lot of stigma around reaching out for help. Right. And there's a lot of stigma around, well, you know, getting depressed and like having compassion fatigue. I do think it's getting better. And I think the more that we talk about it, the better it's going to get. And just that people can normalize it, right? It's like you're working in these really hard industries. Like it's bound to come up. It's not something personal. It's not something that's wrong with you. We just tend to internalize all that stress and we forget there are like better ways to deal with things. And we just kind of keep going the way that we're going until we figure out, well, this is not going to work. So yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think self-compassion goes a long way and that's something that I really try to work with people on and teach and try to do for myself, you know, and it is prioritizing it and it is telling yourself over and over again to prioritize it (laughs) because it is like the last thing that people tend to do. You know, we're just not taught that in our society. We are taught to, you know, go to college, get a job, like work, 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 take care of your family. Like nobody ever teaches you along the way to learn about how to be compassionate to yourself. Right. So when you get in these hard jobs like that, that can really hit you hard when you're not prepared for it. But I do, again, think there are resources and think there's a lot more community than there used to be, which is wonderful. So it's kind of like with, you know, there's been this evolution with like dog training where, I grew up in the eighties. I was born in 1980. And so back then, like nobody talked about positive reinforcement training and it just sort of, it seemed like it evolved maybe within the past 15 ish years, you know, where it really started to be a thing. It's kind of the same thing with mental health. And like the stigmas around that is like the same thing growing up, like nobody normalized it. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Like if something was going on, it stayed within your family it wasn't something that was really openly shared. Whereas now, you know, you go online and like people are willing to talk about their trauma and you're kind of like, well, yeah, you know, if people feel safe, like if they feel safe, like discussing and like disclosing, then, you know, let's normalize that and let's understand, like, let's not isolate each other. Right. Let's not isolate. I think isolation is really the enemy sometimes. So I think so too. I think so too. I did a session with a veterinary clinic last week and we started with, you know, things that people wanted to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. And one woman said, I made an appointment with a psychiatrist. And as soon as she said that one next to her said, yesterday, I had my first appointment with a psychiatrist. Oh, that's so great. Like people can say it now, right? Yeah. And it was like something with energy and celebration and like, yay me, as opposed to any sort of shame or embarrassment. She, you know, they felt they needed help, sought it out, found it. One has an appointment and the other one has already experienced her first appointment and awesome. 
how how wonderful. I think that's wonderful. And I, I think it's great that we're trying to get away from labeling too, right? You know, it's like labeling, I feel like is so unhelpful to people. And I'm a strengths-based therapist on the therapy side. So I'm all about, you know, what are your strengths? Like, what are the things we're already doing right? Like, it, there's no point in labeling and then just re-stigmatizing somebody. So helping them to realize like, yes, like this is a normal thing. You know, I try to do some outreach to veterinary clinics too, and just talk about this. And there's a whole initiative, not one more vet. I don't know if you've heard of that before, Mm -hmm. but you know, to help veterinary professionals and help them understand like, yes, like these are, it's not just you, you know, this is a thing that's happening. Like it's tragic, like it's happening in your industry, but that a lot of these professionals that are, you know, they're very like, driven and very perfectionist. They've probably been taught like you don't reach out for those external supports. You do it on your own. And that's just not survivable. You know, it's literally not survivable for people. So, you know, I try to promote that when I go out and, you know, I have my little training baskets and put some information in there on that. And, you know, hopefully that's getting out there. Cause I think that again, the more we normalize, the better this will get for people. And it's especially hard you know, coming out of the pandemic, everything has been crazy for a couple of years now. And yeah, that stress has been extra high. So, so everybody has to kind of be extra vigilant with themselves. I think. I think so too. And I love that you said you're, um, you have a strength based focus. I think it's so interesting that most of us are well aware of our faults and not very aware of our strengths. And everyone has them. Everyone has gifts and talents and strengths that are so amazing that other people are like, oh, I wish I could do that. Right. But we haven't learned to identify them for ourselves and to lean on them, to recognize that they come in handy for us. It's so interesting you say that because that is the one question when I ask my human clients in intake, I always ask, well, what are your strengths? They pause. It's like this long silence. And it's usually, I don't know. And I'm like, really? Like you have just told me all these things. And like, I can see like all these wonderful things. And like that individual though, it just hasn't been reinforced for them. So, I mean, it's kind of sad when you think about it. Like what, why does that happen? Is it like the way that our society is built and like maybe certain strengths are recognized and certain ones aren't, or why is it so hard, you know, for us to be able to say like, Hey, you know, this is what I really like about myself, or this is what I'm really good at, or these are my good qualities because it happens over and over again. And in my initial sessions with people where they're just stumped, I ask you too, and they're stumped too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a dual level thing. I think we aren't taught to recognize them and then We are also taught that if you say something that sounds braggy or proud or anything that you're being egotistical or wrong. So if you, if you say like, I'm really proud of myself for the way I did this, you might get a, oh, how wonderful response. Or you might get, wow, pretty full of yourself from a very young age. Yeah. From a young age, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one thing that's interesting too, is like, you know, I've sort of tried to take this. I guess you could call it like relationship based, like strengths perspective in my dog training too. And how hard it is for people to talk about the good things about their dog sometimes too. They'll let you know everything the dog is doing. And that's kind of their hyper focus is like all the things that are coming up behavior wise that they don't like about what their dog is doing. 
But then I'm like, well, your dog is like so intelligent and like has this drive. Like, how can we use that as a strength? And so sort of like reframing that. And I don't know if there's a relationship there, you know, it's like we come from a place. Sorry, that's Miss Lyra. If we come from a place where we're so used to looking at problems and so used to looking at, I don't want to say the negative side, but like, yeah, the the uh, side where we're like, we need to fix this, that we're not recognizing, well, what's already going well. And, you know, how can you use like your dog's natural behaviors in their favor and use that in training? So I'm trying to help people understand that more. And I almost get this sort of, I don't want to say backlash, but I get some resistance there where it's like, well, but no, like my dog is doing this. And so it's, it's like hitting a wall over and over again. So I'm trying to understand you know, with the human side of that, like, where does that come from? And is it part of something that they believe that they need to overcome that maybe they're projecting something on their dog, right? Or projecting like unreasonable expectations on their dog. That happens quite a bit, but how can we get them to see like, Hey, you know, there are ways you can work with this, but also like it is work and it is trying to understand your animal companion, trying to understand their behavior has a function, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of labeling that goes on with people and their animals. Oh yeah. Rather than understanding, you know, function of behavior. So yeah. Yeah. And with our brain's negativity bias, we're far more likely to notice what isn't right in our opinion, you know, totally right in the dog's opinion, but isn't right in our opinion, and then give it a bad label than to notice what is right because because our brains are wired for that. I think so. Maybe it's a little scary for people. I don't know, you know, making that shift. Because it seems to be something that I'm telling the the human side, like more and more is like, well, but remember your dog can do this. And remember, you know, to notice like the good things that they are doing on the walk, not just like the time that they tore after the rabbit. And we were like, yeah, we're glad we didn't lose them and glad you didn't fall, you know, but all these other things went well. So sometimes it is reflecting like all the things that are going well, so that maybe the problem doesn't seem so overwhelming to them. Because I think that's the reason a lot of people go in for training is they're overwhelmed. You know, they've gotten to a point with their dog that they're just like, oh, I don't even know what to do anymore. Yeah. And so then they're not in a good emotional state. Right. Right. Yep. I can see that too. They're less receptive to learning because they're already kind of at the end of their bandwidth of like, oh, I cannot deal with this dog any longer. They're over threshold. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) it happens, you know, and it is like, how can you repair that bond? You know, so it isn't like, well, I feel like I have to give up my dog or, you know, there's nothing I can do. Like, is there a way to really focus on that connection that they have with their pet? So that's what I'm trying to bring more into my training is, you know, taking what I've learned about the human animal connection and And making that something that my training clients can realize too, is like the power of that bond. I think most people love their pets very much. And that when they do have to make that decision, when they do decide, you know, I have to rehome, then it's extremely difficult for them. Mm -hmm. So if we can avoid that happening, if we can make things, you know, more reasonable and set different expectations, then I guess, you know, that might be a goal to have. Yeah. And if we can stop judging people so harshly when they do make that decision, because it, I have never yes. encountered anyone for whom that was an easy decision. No, and no. It, when they make that decision, it's almost always a gift for the dog to be yeah. no longer living in a situation that was so very, very hard for the dog. You know, whatever the, whatever the circumstances in that house where they wanted it to work, but it didn't work. 
Yeah. I think, I think we're getting there. We're doing a little bit better on that, but we definitely have culturally a lot of judgment. A lot of judgment, a lot of shaming, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really kind of sad. You know, I saw recently a woman had like left her dog tied to, I think like a fire hydrant and, and she was homeless and she had cancer and it was like, okay, all the reasons you would say, yes, like you have to relinquish your dog. And, and she called the police and said, you know, I'm leaving my dog here. And she was watching around the corner, like making sure nothing happened, but like there was all this horrible backlash. And I'm just like, my gosh, like we have to be empathetic to our human counterparts too. Like, yes, we love animals, but we really have to understand, you know, sometimes people are really at the end of their rope. They've tried everything. Like this is a last resort for them. You know, us as trainers, we try to help. We try to figure out what we can do, but sometimes it is, you know, that is the best decision is, is to, to give up the pet. So it's hard, but I, I do think you're right. Like if we can normalize that sometimes that happens and not do the shaming that would do us a lot more good. So how is it that we can be so humane to animals and like so concerned about their welfare, but then not always kind to each other, you know, not always kind to each other. And that's what we really need right now, you know, coming in the world that we're in now. And there's so much divisiveness is just really focusing on kindness. And, you know, even I try to take that time in the morning to tune in to say, you know, how do I want to be? How do I want to show up today? What kind of a person do I want to show up? And I even tell myself, my late dog putter, he would have the kindest soul. How would he want me to show up? What kind of a person would I be today? And it's helped me. And I'm human. I screw up. <laughs> you know, I've got my moments in traffic when I'm like mad and, you know, I, I want to scream. But I, But I think it's really helped me understand to be compassionate. And he gave me that gift. And that's been wonderful. I think I really learned empathy through my companionship with my dog. And that's helped me to be kinder to other people. Yeah, which is the most beautiful gift. I mean, such a beautiful gift and kinder to yourself, like both pieces of that, that uh, your relationship with Putter has given you so much that, that pays dividends forever. Yes. So I asked you for some words that had meaning to you. Yes. And you shared this. If you do not hope, you will not find what is beyond your hopes. And it's a quote from St. Clement of Alexandria. So tell me a little bit about this, how you chose it and, and what it means to you. Yeah. So I don't remember exactly when I did this, but I actually found that quote online and it resonated with me. I want to say it was maybe around the time the pandemic was happening, but I printed it off. So I have it hanging in my kitchen where I can see it on a daily basis. And it's been there for years, right? So I think for me, it's just sort of, it goes back to that, what I was saying in in the beginning, where if you open your mind, you have no idea like what could potentially come into your life and positive things that could happen. And I think we get stuck thinking, well, it's going to be this way, or it's going to be a certain way. And that's actually, it draws away hope, right? So I kind of felt like with this quote, and, you know, saying it to myself and reading it over and over is that it just reminds me like, there's always something else that you don't know about. But if you don't open your mind to it, you're not going to realize it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really powerful, you know, just having that Like, I don't know the answers, which is something that I know you've talked about in discussion before, Colleen, is Mm -hmm. I don't have the answers, but there is actually beauty in that uncertainty. And there is, 
you know, I believe there's, everyone has different beliefs, but I believe there's a life force that wants to bring good things into your life, but that you have to be willing to be open to it. Right. So that's kind of what that quote means to me. And especially during the pandemic, it was like, man, I got to have something (laughs) that just resonates like hope. And like, there is going to be like something beyond this and, and we're still in it. Right. But still needing that just reassurance that you can look back on your past. You can see the hardest things that you've ever gone through, but then you can see like everything that's happened after that. And some of the good things that have come after that. And I feel like that's an indicator that there are things that we just don't expect that are beautiful and wonderful. And I was very fortunate, like I talked about with my internship and, you know, going through Karen Pryor Academy that like, those are just huge blessings that I would have never, ever thought of or expected. So yeah. So it gets me through, you know, gets me through, especially when things are getting tougher. Thank you. I think it's beautiful. And I, I agree that hope is one of those emotions that inspires like forward motion, forward thinking, forward positivity. It gives us some sort of energy uh, when we have hope. I think so. I think so. And even if you can just be still with yourself and just be open to it, you know, if you are stuck and feeling like it's hard to move forward, just being open to the concept of change, right? And that maybe there's something that I don't know about that's around the corner. I think those are really helpful thoughts to have when we're feeling stuck. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. If people want to learn more about you and your work, Sarah, how could they do that? Yes. Yeah, so I have a website. It's Southern Colorado Animal Assisted in Training. So the acronym is SOCO AAT and training.com. So you can go to my website and kind of view what I do with both the training and the uh, human client aspect of my work. Always welcome to emails and contacts and phone calls. So I am happy when people reach out to me. I love talking about what I do. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today about what you do. I really enjoyed this conversation. You're very welcome. I did as well, Colleen. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com, where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.